0: Welcome to Ministry Leaders Anonymous. My name is Chris Bartlett. And
1: I'm Matt Rice, and we hope to provide a moment of sanity during a busy week of ministry. We've both worked in
0: ministry for over 20 years and have seen just about everything.
1: And as damaged as we are, we are ready to dive into and bring light to the hurts, hopes, and hungers that every ministry leader has.
0: Awesome, you guys, welcome to the show today. We have an amazing guest, Dr. Holly Ordway. She is, uh, man, I don't even know your proper title, but she she's a Word on Fire academic, and I am in my hand holding A uh, a six pound book written by her all about Tolkien's (laughs) modern reading. And so just to give you a little bit of background, uh, some historians were throwing shade about how Tolkien was a a one trick pony in regards to his culturization, his study, the things that he exposed himself to was very much narrowed or in an echo chamber and uh, and. Uh, Dr. Holly actually makes a, a compelling argument that he was more a man for all seasons and not afraid to even venture into areas that seemed to oppose some of his lines of thought and things like that. And this all comes from kind of, I think, really her heart for Tolkien because Tolkien's creativity was instrumental in her coming to know the Lord in a deeper way. So welcome, Dr. Holly. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, this journey with Jesus and Tolkien?
2: Absolutely. And it's a a pleasure to be here uh, with you guys on the show. So I am the my full title is I'm the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute. So um, real quick,
1: does that fit on a business card? No kidding.
2: So I'm the Fellow of Faith and (laughs) Culture is the is the short version. Um, So my my preview at the Institute, which is the educational um, and evangelizing like formational branch of Word on Fire, um, is to. You know, engage with culture, and to show how we as Catholics can engage with culture um, and should how to model it, how to how to do it, how to evangelize, especially in my case um, through literature. And you know, my my PhD is in English literature, and I've studied Tolkien for decades. And as you noted, he was he really was instrumental in helping me be first become interested in is this Christian thing even true? Because I, I mm. um, I'm an adult convert to Christianity. And it was it was doing my doctoral dissertation on fantasy and writing about Tolkien and revisiting his great essay on fairy stories, where indeed he in the epilogue to on fairy stories, he really presents the gospel. He, he presents the evangelium wow. in a really profound, yet not pushy way. It was beautiful. And it it spoke to me, even though I didn't believe or want to believe what it was saying. And so years later, I ended up I was teaching literature and started to think, you know, all my favorite authors are these wacky Christians. Part so that, they're they're so brilliant. You know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien, and George Many Hopkins, and all those. You know, so I thought, well, let me let me look into this. I wonder if I could learn a little bit more about them if I understand what they what they believe. Maybe they're not complete, not cases. <laughs> and uh, you can see that I, I wasn't going into this investigation with any desire to become a Christian, but I ended up discovering, frankly, much to my dismay, that this was, in fact true, that Christianity was based on historical events and metaphysical realities that i that I had to deal with. You know, if these things are true, then, well, one has to face these things. So I, I became a Christian uh, with a, a generous help from uh, Tolkien. And then um, a few years later, again, following just the call of the Lord to discipleship, discovered again, quite to my startlement oh, the Catholic Church is actually where we find the fullness of the faith. Well, I guess I had better become a Catholic. All right, then.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. After reading, you know, a little bit about your testimony and your journey, I just think it's so beautiful and powerful how, like, fantasy or stories like that is what led you into the Catholic Church. That's probably the only way, and maybe, that God could have gotten you there because you your defenses were up in every other area.
2: Absolutely. And this is why, you know, it really... Sp- resonated with me when I encountered Bishop Barron's work um, for Word on Fire it was Father Barron when I first started, you know, reading and, and watching his stuff. And and then when they invited me to, to, to you know, work for them, because that whole idea of leading with beauty, um, you know, Bishop Barron points out that in today's culture, you know, we have the three transcendentals, goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm. We need a full grasp of all three because they're the three attributes of God. But in today's culture, People shy away from arguments about truth because they think it's going to be oppressive. Um, They think they're going to hit you over the head with it. And frankly, too often people do evangelize in that kind of blunt way. And people are resistant to claims about the good because we live in a culture that is just profoundly morally confused and claims about good again come across as oppressive and and rather than being liberating which they are they come across as restricting
1: well sure in 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 this relativistic world good doesn't make sense
2: yeah so where where are people willing to open the door crack beauty people are moved by beauty it gets it gets past your defenses you can't not respond to beauty even if you don't understand why And so beauty becomes the opening where you can intrigue people, and then they start to say, and this is exactly what happened to me, you start to say, wow, why do I respond to this? If everything is relativistic and I'm just a meat machine, why do I find this poem so moving? Or, you know, oh, I feel this picture of goodness is so profoundly attractive. Well, if there is no such thing as good and evil, why do I desire the good and, and dislike the evil? And that can then lead to a place where you become, as I became, actually willing to ask the question, Mm. why do I respond? Is there objective good and evil? Is there a God? Maybe I'd be interested in listening to the answers. And that was what imaginative literature did for me, is it made the questions about goodness, about God, made them meaningful, mm-hmm. so that eventually, eventually, it took a long time, yep. started asking the questions and was genuinely willing to think about the answers, because the same arguments that ended up convincing me when I was 30, if I had heard them when I was 20, I would have just completely ignored them because I wasn't willing to listen.
0: Well, and I think you mentioned presentation. Sometimes people pick up the weapons of apologetics instead of the tools of evangelization. I think beauty is one of the best tools. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with LARPing, L-A-R-P. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So it stands for live action role play. And just listening to you now, because when people are like, hey, what did you do in high school? I was a soccer player. I did, you know, track and field. I was a football player. I played Magic the Gathering at lunch. That's what I did. I played the Magic the Gathering card game. And (laughs) I see so many uh, people almost dismissed, even in youth ministry and things like that, because, oh, those are the geeky kids or the nerdy kids or the kids that are wearing capes or whatever. And I'm listening to you and I'm like, no, no, no. Jesus is next to him wearing a cape, right? And there's something beautiful about that incarnational reality that, uh, that that Jesus will go to wherever we are at and he has evangelists there. And really, to a degree, Tolkien has been a part of your family, not just a part of your journey, because I, I bet there's only three other people on planet Earth that know him as well as you know him. You know, I mean, for <laughs> real. And, uh, and I think that that's a beautiful beautiful thing. Uh, one of the phrases that you use to talk about that and how fantasy led you to Jesus is imaginative apologetics. Can you unpack that term for us? I just, I think it's amazing.
2: Well, this is really the idea that the imagination is, is part of how we can present the truth. Um, and of course, apologetics you know in itself is, is, you know, making a defense, apologia, giving a case for why we believe what we believe. Unfortunately, it's gotten a bit of a bad name because we've got some apologists who are just bullies, which is bad in any, in any case. But imaginative apologetics is the term that I and, and if some of my, my colleagues on. Michael Ward, for instance, is uh, one of my, my colleagues who has written on imaginative apologetics quite, quite helpfully. And considering the imagination as one of our fundamental human faculties, we don't usually do that. It's a mistake we've made in modern culture. We have the intellect, with our reason that makes judgments. We have our um, emotions that have emotional reactions. We have our senses that bring us data about the world. The imagination, and this isn't a concept that goes all the way back to you know, medieval times. The imagination is the human faculty that takes the information that we get from our senses and forms it into meaningful images. And then our reason can make judgments about it and our will can act on it. So, for instance, take this idea of, of goodness. You know, it's an abstract term. You know, what does it even mean? It's easy to say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm just going to live my life as, as I can. I'm not going to worry about, you know, whether there's a such thing as goodness. In Middle Earth, we have that kind of concretized. We have this picture of Frodo, you know, carrying the ring, helping his friends. So much beauty, um, so much, you know, effort to be good, to do the right thing. We're moved by that. And that's the imagination is, is taking these, these images and is building up a sense in which goodness then becomes something that's a meaningful concept. And then we can actually make judgments about it that are richer and more informed because we have some substance to think about. Because when a word is just an abstract term, like in our modern culture, for most people, including, I would say, most Christians, the word sin is pretty much an empty signifier. Mm. It doesn't actually carry anything particularly significant or if it does carry something, it's it's trivial. So how does our reason make judgments about it? Accurate judgments. Um, and then we need to have you know good judgments in order to then make the right decisions. Should I do that? Will I act? So the imagination actually plays a really pivotal role In the connection between taking in our experience of the world, making judgments about it, acting on those judgments. And if the imagination is starved or malnourished or crippled by any variety of ways, then we will have faulty pictures of the world, we will have lack of meaning, we will have insubstantial pictures of what things are, We'll make faulty judgments and we will not be motivated to make the right decisions.
0: Right. But I think an important piece is, is that the imagination is still engaged and that's not what's wrong. It's that, that it's engaged in a disordered way. Right. And so often I feel like there's times or or even in parenting where we want to discourage imagination and it's like, no, we should absolutely encourage it. In fact, we do encourage it in like the O'Divina, which is a common spiritual practice of engaging our gift of imagination with the gift and the treasure of scripture combined. And I think Tolkien really did that same type of electio thing utilizing imagination just with the Christian journey instead of with uh, clear scriptural passages and things of that nature. And so how do we put this gift of imagination that comes from God at the service of his kingdom and in a way that really engages other people. And so I would even say imaginative apologetics could also be called imaginative evangelization as well in some of the cases in this beautiful thing.
2: Yeah, and I think you're, you're absolutely right to emphasize that point because the imagination, it's a human faculty. We, we always use it. We can't not use it. So we can't just say, oh... We don't need the imagination or the imagination leads us astray. Well, our reason leads us astray, but we can't turn off our reason. Right. We shouldn't try. Right. Um, so we have to, how do we guide it? How do we nourish it? And I think Tolkien is a great model in that of how, how to take in nourishing food, how to guide the imagination to be to be healthy and strong as our reason and our will should be healthy and strong.
0: So, I want to encourage the listeners to be dreamers of dreams to see the world as you desire it to be, even if it has to feel a little bit like fantasy, because sometimes the reality and the way that we dream the world to be, it, it seems like there's a huge difference there. But at the same time, sometimes that can be frustrating, right? Like the heroism that's shown in a lot of Tolkien's work, you don't see that in real life. And that's almost discouraging to be like, no one would be willing to make those type of sacrifices or to stand up. But at the same time, our heart is stirred by that reality because we know that the human is capable of that type of gift, right? And so there's almost this tension in diving into it because you're like, oh, I hunger for something like that. That hunger can't be satisfied right now here in the sinful reality that we exist in.
1: It translates to smaller daily things. Even yesterday, like a homeless man came up asking for help and I ended up putting him in my car and, and driving him to the bus station to buy him a bus pass and, and take him back. And that was a
0: journey, you know, and it took courage. I was worried that you were going to say you drove him to a volcano <laughs> and then you, you, you took off his ring and you threw it in there.
1: But oh, like that was a journey that took courage, you know, to say yes to the mission that I was called to that day. And I think in, in that that that's a relatively small thing, especially when compared to what Frodo went through. <laughs> but it's it's still something that can be very similar to that same kind of journey. And I think we we go through these things or we're faced with those things every day. Having that example of Frodo in your mind. It's like I can do this or I, I can say yes to this in, in, in a way and connecting the two. I know that's a weird connection, but
2: well, it's less it's less weird than you think because I'm thinking Tolkien actually articulates um, one of the some of the functions of fantasy. He has a, a great, a really profound essay on fairy stories. And in that one of the things he says about fantasy is that it has a particularly strong ability to do what he calls recovery recovery of clear vision. Now, all literature can do this, and Tolkien's just writing about fantasy, and he thinks that fantasy can do it particularly well, and I, and I would agree. So his point is that when we go into a fantasy world, we see, you know, hobbits and elves and dwarves and, you know, Sauron of the ring, and all this is kind of almost heightened. Uh, we see Ents and, you know, Rivendell and all these fantasy things. And then we come back into the real world, uh, the, what he calls the primary world, And we experience a kind of refreshment of vision because by having engaged meaningfully with these fantasy scenes and characters, we are actually able to see more clearly the things around us. So, I mean, as, a, as one example, you know, once you've met the ants, you know, tree beard and the, the shepherds of the trees, these amazing ancient walking trees, they go, room, room. And if you engage with that and then you go for a walk and you look at the trees around you, the trees that you might have seen 20 times, and you think, wow, trees are really amazing. <laughs> yeah, really yep. think about it. like <laughs> Yeah. Um, and that could translate into action because maybe your your town is thinking about like oh you know maybe we'll just bulldoze all the trees to make you know fall cleanup easier and maybe you might say hold on yeah these trees are actually beautiful and they add you know something positive to our community don't do that let's have the trees because now you've seen them yeah and Tolkien makes the point particularly about seeing people he says that that our familiarae the people that we see most often are the easiest to stop seeing clearly because hmm. of the pall of familiarity but that fantasy experience like you know you see Frodo the little hobbit the weak hobbit who um who actually fails in the end it's it's through providence um and his acts of pity and mercy that that the quest is is fulfilled now you come back and you 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 know in his his way of thinking and I think he's right we have this recovery of vision where we can maybe see the homeless person, the child, the person who is maybe too weak to do what they should do, but they're going to try. And we can say, oh, there's real courage there. There's a person there to value. And that's what he calls recovery of vision. Mm. And that's something that fantasy, all literature can do. Fantasy does particularly well, It has a direct impact on how we relate to other people in our day-to-day lives.
1: I love it. Do you see the ability to imagine decreasing because there's so much input? From media, whether it's YouTube or video games or whatever, is that affecting people's ability to imagine and or even desire to use their imagination?
2: Yes and no. I mean, in one sense the imagination is still working because it's taking in those images from the media and it's forming meaningful images. that Then the reason is is acting on. So the imagination is still working. Sure. But I think that there's a component of it that is weakened if we become too passive in the way that we take in images. And I think above all, if we get oversaturated, and I think that's a lot of what's happening today, we are so bombarded with sheer quantity that our imagination is almost like overloaded. It's like a storm drain that's flooding. Like There's so much coming in that there's no way to process it properly um, or, or select properly or assess properly. And so it almost becomes a little bit haphazard. And I think the problem of overstimulation is is a huge one in today's culture. Really almost can't be overstated.
1: So what do ministry leaders do with this information?
2: Well, I mean, I think first to, to recognize that we need to nourish and cultivate our imaginations. Like that's a thing we have to actively do. It doesn't happen by accident. So that means making space and time for beauty and the exercise of the imagination so it can't all just be you know scripture classes and apologetics classes and it can't all just be ministry outreach those are using intellect that's using the will where do we cultivate the imagination are there for instance you know devotional days that are more reflective is there art is there a serious engagement with literature are there book clubs are there film clubs you know, is there, an, are there art classes? It, do, do we support the nourishing of the imagination? So right off, I would say ministry leaders can ask themselves, if I think about the intellect, the emotions, the will, and the imagination, these are all human faculties that need to be supported in order to evangelize well. Is there a place for the imagination and the aesthetic sense um, amongst the various ministries in my parish or in my in my organization? And if the answer is no, then straight up that's the first task. Yeah. You know, we can't, we, we've got to feed it, we've got to nourish it. Doesn't happen instantly. You can't snap your fingers and say, boom, we all have well-formed imaginations, let's go evangelize. You know, we we need to do the work. And that might mean starting a book club, starting a film club, um, putting art in your parish bulletin, mm. you know, little things like that can begin to nourish the imagination
0: it's a stewardship issue, right? We have to steward this. And if we have those that we're in charge of in our ministry or that we're in charge of leading, we have to be able to help them foster those areas, just like we need to teach them how to pray. My goodness, Strengthening their toolbox for prayer and imagination is one of the tools in your toolbox for prayer, right? Absolutely. Sometimes people just look towards uh, memorization, and everyone knows the prayers to say, but do they know how to engage the Lord in in a deeper sense?
2: I mean, think about the rosary. You know, the rosary is supposed to include the exercise of the imagination because you're supposed to be envisioning and, and meditating on the mysteries. But if, say, the wedding at Cana or the agony in the garden are just words to you. You're not really going to get as much benefit out of praying the rosary as you otherwise might. It's not that it will have no benefit. Yeah. It's just that you're missing out. You know, you're having a you know a meal without all the nutritional elements in it. There are so many people, I guarantee you, there are people in every parish who have gifts of you know creativity and the imagination who feel excluded, marginalized. Not appreciated because their gifts are not something that get the name evangelization put on it. Like at the institute, the Word of Fire Institute, we've we're actually just finishing up a writing seminar, um, three weeks of a of a seminar on devotional writing, and we've instituted these peer mentor small groups where people are forming communities to support each other in their writing, and the response has been tremendous. I I'm sort of blown away by how many people coming forward saying. I don't have any experience with writing, but I am—I feel the call to do it or I've dabbled in it and no one has taught me how to do it to serve the Lord. Mm. Help me. So we have, I think, a lot of people who are artists, who are writers, who are musicians, who have these gifts that are God given. And they've got nowhere to use them. And often they're kind of like treated, frankly, as if they're second rate. Right. Well, that's a huge grassroots group of people in parishes, in you know, in your dioceses who have gifts that are not being used. There are talents that effectively are buried in the ground because we can't be bothered to dig them up, yeah. right?
0: Right. Yeah. And so we need to we need to find opportunities to give the imagination a canvas. A- another piece, and I think this goes back to the model that Tolkien gives us is that we also need to uh, be creative in the way that we're doing ministry, right? And so he hit a home run with Lord of the Rings, but you mentioned that when he wrote it, he did not know, he was just taking a swing. So what does that mean in regards to our creative risk-taking? Like some of you listening are amazing with, with lyrics or with music, some of you are amazing with drawing or different types of art. Some of you are, are amazing at performance art. And some of you have kept all that under a bushel basket because it doesn't fit into the traditional understanding of what a curriculum or whatever your ministry typically does. How do we go ahead and take that risk to say, no, I'm going to use my skill set, my gifting and go for it. Like, what does that look like?
2: Well, I would say, and again, I Tolkien is such an amazing model for this because he does take does take this risk. And he's aware that it's a risk because he says, you know, for years, he he felt that no one would appreciate his work, you know, and and he keeps on doing it. And I think that is part of the first lesson that Tolkien didn't just sit down one day, write a book and say, here, I've tried something. It was the fruit of literally decades of writing and also of reading and of work and of revision Um, I mean, the amount of revision and reworking he did for everything that he wrote is incredible. And one of the lessons I say to my students when I teach writing is writing is a skill. And any art form, whether it's drawing or painting or sculpture or dance, if you have the desire to do it, you might have some innate gifts. And a lot of times there's a bit of a transition point where people, they begin to exercise it and then they stop or they stall out. And there's two reasons that can happen. One is that they receive no encouragement and no help, and then they get depressed and they just give up. But the other is that they have too high expectations for how it will be received, and they think that their first novel is going to be the next Lord of the Rings. They think their next, their first picture is going to be um, Rembrandt, and they realize that it's not getting you know, that kind of reception, and they, they don't persist because they reach the point at which it takes effort to improve. The very first step can sometimes be you have that beginner's ease. Yeah. After that, and I've been writing all my life. It's hard work. Art is hard work. And that has slightly been missed out because we've so shoved the arts and imaginative things into the realm of hobby that people have lost sight that it's like, you know, if you're going to be serious as a scripture leader, you study the scriptures, you read commentaries, you listen to good homilies, you do the work. So if you're going to be a good poet, I'm a poet too. If you're going to be a good poet. You've got to do the work. And that is something we need to provide environments that, this is the tricky thing, are both encouraging and challenging. Because we need to encourage people to do the work, to use their gifts, but we also have to say you're not going to be the next JR or Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or Flannery or O'Connor, the first thing you do.
0: Yeah. Right. You
2: need to do the work. And that is part of the process. It's not a rejection of their gift. In fact, it's an affirmation of the gift. We we're not super good at that in this culture mm. and in the church, but that's the balance that we we need to have to say, yes, use your gift and here, let me provide the environment in which. You can grow in your gifts and become skilled at it and serve the Lord in that way.
0: And so the phrase, it's more art than science, really applies to this case. Yeah. Uh, One thing we talked about in in our show prep is kind of two modes of evangelization, and you mentioned direct and indirect. And I think that this art and imaginative apologetics really falls into the indirect mode of evangelization. Which I think is foreign to most of the ministry that's done in the church today. So could you speak just a little bit? We only have a couple minutes left in regards to indirect the indirect mode of evangelization.
2: Well, I would just I would just add, I think that the imaginative arts can be direct. Like Flannery O'Connor's short stories, for instance, are pretty directly about the experience of, of grace. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, some of his works in The Great Divorce is about people going to heaven and and yeah. So we have what we have imaginative works that can present things directly. The trick there is to do it directly but without being pushy. But then we have someone like Tolkien who in his um, in his writing, you know there aren't any overt references to you know Christ or the church or, or doctrine. but what we have are the fundamentals of goodness, truth, and beauty. It's a monotheistic universe. We, when we experience Middle Earth, we experience a world that operates under the moral laws that we live in. And so it kind of teaches us to, like, to value what's good and to reject what's evil. That form of indirect evangelization is where you're, you're presenting stories, art that shows something that's interesting, that's beautiful, and does it from a foundation that's rooted in the truth. Um, is consistent with the truth, isn't necessarily taking the step to draw the, the connections, but it allows someone to engage at an earlier level and to, to value what's good and maybe then desire to know where can I find the good. So that indirect approach is a really vitally important stage in in that kind of basic nourishment of our moral sense.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned before the show that it's really hard for ministry leaders to allow that to be a part of their ministry because they feel like they need to be talking about Jesus or his church at all times, rather than something that points to that, but isn't directly about that.
2: Yeah, but it's, it's so necessary. And in part, and I speak also from my own experience and also from from teaching, that we need to have the less direct approaches because you know, there's a lot of baggage attached to talking about things like Jesus and the church, often for very bad reasons. But if someone's been hurt, they've been hurt. You know, we have to accept that they have the baggage. We've got to know that it's there. Mm, yeah. um, or there's also sorts of false meanings attached to it. Or they're just like, oh, that's a waste of time. Well, then we can talk about Jesus until the cows come home and it will have exactly zero evangelistic effect. Yep, right. If we get them interested in talking about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a fulfilled life? Everybody cares about that. And then they become they they start to find these concepts meaningful, and they start to be interested in asking the deeper questions. And then then they might be and hopefully will be prepared to hear a bit more about where we might find more about what it means to be human, what it means to have a fulfilled life. So that initial step, I mean, there are so many people who are, very far from being even able, much less willing, even able to take in direct evangelization. That's just a fact. I wish it were not so,
0: yeah, but right. it's
2: simply a fact. So we, you know, we need to go meet people where they are. I mean, where else are we going to meet them, right? Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. And that means going out and engaging in indirect ways so that we can draw them in so that they'll find these concepts meaningful and then care. Because they, they won't care if it's true until they care about it, that it's meaningful.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I think there's something beautiful about engage them in the economy of grace before you engage them in the economy of truth. Just say, you know what? You understand these things. Your heart is stirred in the same way my heart is stirred, and that's because beauty is the on-ramp, not not behavior. Oh, you need to behave this way, or you need to say this prayer, or something like that. So this is absolutely fascinating. I think there could be 150 podcast episodes on this alone. Dr. Holly, how, if people wanted to follow up with you, how would people find you to to shoot you an email or or follow you on socials or whatever? How do people follow you?
2: Well, they can go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. And uh, I'm also on Facebook and I'm on on Twitter as uh, HollywoodWay. So, but hollywoodway.com is my website where you can find out what I've written and um, my work at Word on Fire and all of that.
0: Excellent. Yes. And uh, the most recent work that I've encountered is, of course, Tolkien's Modern Reading. It's absolutely a very thorough exploration of Tolkien and his journey. Really neat response to some of the mishistorization or whatever categorization of Tolkien. So thank you so much for joining us, you guys. We are so, uh, so grateful to, to Dr. Holly for being here. And uh, let's continue the conversation online.
1: Please send any feedback you guys have to at ablaze.us and share this podcast with someone.
0: Here at Ministry Leaders Anonymous, we believe that if you want to go quickly, go alone.
1: And if you want to go far, we go together.
0: So take some time this week to pray for other ministry leaders and dive into your favorite form of creativity, literature, just explore the beauty of God in unconventional ways.
1: We will see you guys next week on Ministry Leaders Anonymous. God bless you.